questions? Any questions? Who's going to be the first? I know you've got loads. Yes. Thank you. What about people who can't read? <laughs> uh, two things come to mind. What about people who can't read? Um, during the great uh, evangelical revival in the 18th century, uh, one of the great motivators to universal education was people wanting to read so that they could read the Bible. Uh, and I think that's happened in many other places. Once the Bible's been translated into a language, uh, it motivates people to want to learn to read. Having said that, not everybody has the opportunity, maybe, to get access to a Bible and to be able to read it, which is why I think the preaching ministry is so important in the New Testament. Um, you might say, well, of course, this is un you know, it's unfair of God to, uh, to give us a book which perhaps some people might find too hard to read or to understand. But that's why one of the reasons why I think God commissioned preaching, which is very democratic in that sense, because if the preaching is at the right level, so that everybody can understand it and everybody can have access to the content of the Bible. And that was, I suppose, the idea in the, uh, in the Reformation when the homilies were written in the back of the prayer book and you know, they were, they were sermons that could be read out by the parish priest because people in the parish couldn't read or didn't have access to reading material. And um, so the church over the years in different contexts has got around that, but um, it does require a, a preaching, teaching ministry to help people to understand the content. Yeah. Uh, quick question on the, um, your very last question on the page. Uh, how would you try to convince a non-Christian uh, that the Bible is worth careful reading? If you were to recommend one book of the Bible to a non-Christian, do you have a recommendation? Yeah, I would go for Mark's Gospel. Um, partly because uh, it's a very fast-moving, uh, dramatic's the wrong word, but the story keeps moving, um, there's a lot of narrative in it, which means that the first approach to the Bible, everybody loves stories, so narratives are a good way in, and Mark is probably the most um, uh, easily understood of the four gospel narratives. Um, and also because it does two things. The first half of the gospel keeps on asking you the question, who is this Jesus? So the first eight chapters are really a presentation of the person and character, the work of Christ, the ministry of Christ. And then when the disciples finally get it right in chapter eight and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, then the focus switches over to, well, what sort of Christ is he gonna be and what does it mean to follow him? So the second half of the gospel is much more discipleship focus. So the first is bringing you to faith, and the second is showing you what it means to be a disciple of the crucified Jesus. So I think Mark is a, is a great gospel to go to. Um, I'd certainly go to a gospel first. Lots of people would say John, and John has been the means of many, many people becoming Christians. Um, slightly more um, complex, uh, considerably more complex, slightly more sort of uh, theological, philosophical. Depends on the person, I guess. I mean, it's all the it's all the Word of God, and it can all be useful. But I think for most people, Mark's a great starter. Keep those questioners coming. Um, thanks. Could you say anything about other ways that God speaks or reveals himself other than Scripture? Um, I think 
uh, the primary way in which he does it is through the Bible. Um, you will probably find, as I do, that all sorts of people over the years come to you saying, God has told me. Sometimes God has told them something that they should tell me. Sometimes God has told them things in their own lives. I always like to check that out by saying, is this something which we can confirm from the things that we know God has said, um, uh, i.e. in the 66 books of the Bible? Uh, my own position on this would be that if it isn't, then it may well be that God has said this, but it doesn't have the same authority as something that is the written word, which I know is going to be true for everybody everywhere. So, um, uh, I mean, people feel that God has put in my heart something before, for example, myself, before I came and did this, I started this training course 25 years ago, for three years, I had had in my heart a real desire to try and make a contribution towards a new generation of um, gospel and Bible preachers and teachers. And God put that in my heart, I know. Um, I didn't know how it was going to be fulfilled uh, until eventually, three years later, after a lot of prayer and a lot of thinking and a lot of discussion, the, the right door suddenly opened. So I'm, I think that was a combination of what I had gleaned from Scripture, that this was really important, so there was a biblical foundation for it. But then the Spirit of God took the Word of God to do the work of God in my heart so that I was ready to leave my church and to take up this new ministry, uh, even though lots of people told me that was a crazy thing to do. But I believe that you know, there was a solid biblical foundation for doing it and that God had put it on my heart. And you test that over a period of time by taking advice and by prayer and, and so on. So I'm, I'm sure there are, Jim Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, calls them nudges of the Holy Spirit, where um, clearly God pushes us in a certain direction. But that's a different thing from looking for a 67th book of the Bible to be written that is authoritative for everybody everywhere. I don't expect that to happen because I think in the 66 books we've got the full and perfect and sufficient revelation. Um, and the Spirit will use that then to channel us into the ways he wants us to go. Cameron Blair. Kiwi. Yeah, have you got any guidance on when you read the Old Testament? There's quite a lot of promises, as you mentioned, to David and Israel and, and so forth. And I quite often see, you quite often see Christians today taking those promises and just applying it to their own lives when those promises were perhaps made to someone else. Do you have any sort of guidance around you know, how far we can take that or how that works? Thanks very much. Um, great question. We could do an evening on it, really. <laughs> but it is a great question. Because um, every, every uh, part of Scripture has a sort of historical particularity. It is related to particular people at a particular time. But it's been preserved by the Holy Spirit for our instruction because it is divine truth and therefore it's going to have relevance to us. But the way we read the Bible is from the New Testament backwards. So Martin Luther said, you know, we can only read the Bible forwards, but we understand it backwards. By which he meant that here we are. I mean, if you think of a timeline from the Old Testament through to the 21st century here, here I am in the 21st century. As I look back to the Old Testament, there is a great event which is in my way. I don't go back to the Old Testament without going through the cross of Christ. 
there it is. It's in history, the coming of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the great division of history. So I read the Old Testament through the lens, if you like, that is Jesus, and I interpret the Old Testament from the New Testament foundation. Now that means there will be continuity from the Old Testament to the New, because the great uh, commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus applies it in different ways, fuller ways than the Old Testament was, was, uh, was doing. But there will also be discontinuity. So I don't have to go to Jerusalem to a temple to worship. Um, I don't have to make a sacrifice because there's one sacrifice for sin forever. Um, I don't, um, I, I can eat shellfish now, <laughs> you know, because he said all foods are clean. So those sorts of things. So I think in a nutshell, you've got to look for both. You've got to say, does the New Testament make this discontinuous because it gives us fuller revelation later that helps us understand the earlier? I mean, the shellfish stuff was obviously to teach Israel um, the difference between what was acceptable and what was not, between purity and impurity. Well, we have been taught that in all sorts of ways, supremely in the life of Christ, and then by the apostles as they apply the gospel to the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit and things like that. So those principles remain the same, but they're not always to be translated literally. So, for example, Deuteronomy 22 says, when you build a new house, put a parapet around your roof. Well, I don't know anybody in this country who's done that because it says it in Deuteronomy 22. Does that mean that all Christian house builders are ungodly and disobedient? No. You have to say, well, what was the cultural need of that? Well, if you have people coming as your guests, where do you put them? They sleep on the roof. So you don't want them rolling off the roof in the middle of the night. That would be a, a, a not a very charitable thing to allow to happen. Uh, and therefore you put the parapet around because the principle is you care for the people on your roof and under your roof. <laughs> you care for the people in your house. You show them love and concern. So does that have anything to say to us today? Yes, it means that if Granny's coming to live with me, I might put a stair rail on both sides of the stairs so that she doesn't do a somersault every time she's coming downstairs. And you see, it's the same principle. It's caring for the person under your roof and being compassionate and putting yourself out for them. So I think there are lots of evidences like that where it doesn't translate across culturally meaningfully, but the principle translates across into a different meaningful cultural application. So in a nutshell, I think it's looking for the discontinuity and the continuity, but saying that the truth that it reveals about God is unchanging and the truth that it reveals about human nature is unchanging and therefore it's going to have an application to the contemporary world. Sorry, that's a very a brief answer to a big question. One of the difficulties that I have with the Bible is the way um, in the things that God tells the Israelites to do, he's reflected. So when um, the Israelites go into Canaan, they're told to destroy the Canaanites and the people there utterly, and then the kings later are told to kill every man, woman and child and beast of their enemies and they're punished if they don't. I can see obviously there are reasons for that, that God used Israelites to punish the people in the land just as he used the people around Israel to punish them later and so they aren't led astray by the people in the land. But if God told us to do that now, 
we would think that it was not God. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I wondered how we get around that. I, I agree, but I think it's my lens of Christ, isn't it? You see, so Jesus comes and he warns us against the judgment and he says the day of judgment is coming, but all judgment's been given to the Son. So what was happening with Israel was that Israel was the agent of the judgment of God and was herself judged by the capitulation to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So it's not that God is saying, I have an ethnic commitment to Israel and they can get away with anything, far from it. I mean, they lose the land because of their sinfulness, though because of God's eternal promise, they are brought back to the land eventually. So I think what we have to do is to see that the Joshua conquest, for example, is a forensic act of God's judgment against the Canaanite tribes. And it's actually prophesied in Genesis that when the iniquity of the Amorites is full, Genesis 15, then God will bring the people back to the land. It took 430 years before it happened. Um, and the act of judgment was to reveal that there is a God of holiness. But then you see, as soon as they start to conquer the land, uh, they take the city of Jericho and they're told not to uh, take any of the spoils for themselves. Achan does. And then Achan comes under the judgment. So it's not that God is ethnically prejudiced in favor of Israel. It's that God is holy and he must judge sin, which he will do ultimately at the last judgment in the day of Christ, when Christ returns. But in the meantime, it's not for us. So the New Testament says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, that's the verse there. Or when your enemy um, uh, misuses you, pray for him. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to them. So the gospel changes the perspective because now it's moving from an ethnic nation state, Israel, to a universal reborn community of every tribe and kindred and nation. And we don't have in our hands and should never attempt to have, this is why the Crusades is such an awful blot on Christian history, we don't have in our hands the responsibility or the, um, uh, or the ability to make that judgment. That is God's and God's alone. So, again, big subject, but I think uh, if someone said today that we've got to do that, then I would immediately go to the teaching of Jesus and say, you're wrong. Can I come on that side? Just if I could sneak one in, David. Um, could you comment on the relationship between the church and the Bible where the scriptures, the canon was put together seemingly by men, uh, by the church, and yet that canon, those scriptures then have authority over men and over the church. Where's authority lie? What's yeah. that relationship look like? Uh, yes, I think the, uh, I mean, there are two questions there. There's a question about the canon and a question about ultimate authority. I want to say, firstly, on the ultimate authority question, that it lies in the Bible. See, all the disagreements between people in, in Christian circles come down to where is your ultimate authority. When push comes to shove, what determines what you do? I don't know if you've ever heard the Brie diagram. Have you ever heard of that? It's an interesting, um, if you think of the French cheese, B-R-I-E, Brie, and think of four different points of authority. All Christians, in inverted commas, people who claim to be Christians, will claim one of those points of authority. 
So evangelical Christians will say the Bible is our authority. Liberal Christians will say R for reason. Reason is my authority. I will believe what is reasonable to me and not believe what is unreasonable. Um, certain types of Christian institution will claim that the church or the institution, I for institution, is the authority. So in Roman Catholicism, the Pope is the authority who ministers that from God through the bishops to the priests who teach the laity. But the chain of authority is in the institution. And then perhaps the most popular one in our day is that my experience is the authority. If I've experienced it, well, then it's real. And if it feels good to me, then it must be good. So B-R-I-E, Bible, reason, institution, and experience. And all the arguments about those sorts of um, theological issues and so on, I would suggest to you really revolve around the different points of authority. Why am I a Bible Christian? Well, one reason is because the I, the R, the I, and the E are all internal human authorities. But the Bible is claiming to be more than that. It's claiming to be also a divine light that shines um, infallibly, the infallibility of Scripture, into our lives. So the two Peter passage we looked at talks about the Bible as a, as a shining light which you do well to pay attention to. It's a light shining in a dark place until the morning star rises in your hearts. That is, until Jesus comes back and makes us like him. But until then, we need that authority of the light of the Bible. About the canon of Scripture, it's not, I mean, it's often caricatured that, uh, you know, Constantine called a council in Nicaea and they looked at all these books and they chose that one and that one and that one. It wasn't like that at all. Um, there was really very little argument. There were a couple of books that um, people had doubt about because they weren't sure of the apostolic origin um, in the New Testament. The Old Testament canon was fixed at least 200 years before Christ came. We have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from 200 BC. It is the 39 books. We know that that was always regarded as scriptures. There were other books, history books, like uh, the apocryphal books, um, but they were never regarded in the same way as the 39 canonical books. And then in the New Testament, the apostolic writings and those from the apostolic circle were what gave authority to, um, uh, to the New Testament documents. There is, in fact, quite a, a lengthy chapter in here about this. And uh, if you want to follow up the details, I, it's good, too, because people often ask these questions. I would uh, I'd commend that, um, that little book, Why Trust the Bible. It's got a good chapter on canon and authority. Thank you, David. I think perhaps this is going to be our last question for us. Um, this maybe comes back to something you said in the last question, but um, with the various discussions and debates happening across the church in today's world, do you think the Bible has one specific truth that it speaks into and some of us are getting it right and some of us are getting it wrong? Or do you think the Bible in its very nature is accommodating to different views within that? Um, I think what we have to do is to take all the Bible references, to seek to exegete them properly, and to look for as much clarity as we can from them in order to build our view of what is the Bible saying. So often the problem is that people from a particular angle will take a verse that they like that supports their angle, but they then ignore verses that would seem to question it. 
And where there is a, a seeming question, then there has to be either, um, uh, well, you either have to bring the two together and reconcile them, or you have to say the Bible has more than one view on this. Um, so I think what I would say is, in principle, the exegetical work on all the texts is the really important thing. If I start with a principle that says, I want the Bible to say this, now how can I turn the text around so that it says it, and therefore I deny the plain surface meaning of the Bible, then I think I'm doing what Peter says people did to Paul's letters, distorting the scriptures. So if I start from my position and look to the Bible to support it, I'm putting my framework over the Bible. But if I try and gather all the Bible references and honestly before God, prayerfully asking his spirit to lead me, I try to come to a clear understanding of what the Bible is saying, then I think we've got, that's where we can build. That's where we have to take our stand. And other people may disagree with it. Um, we always have to hold our convictions graciously in, in love and, and willing to, dis to talk them through. But we don't need to feel we can't have convictions. And it is important that... Um, in the big issues of our time, as many Christians as possible are committed to what the Bible is saying about them and standing on that conviction. Let's pause there. Um, David, thank you so much. Just, it's been amazing just to uh, have you share your wisdom and your knowledge and just all the work over the many, many years that you have poured and devoted into your understanding of Scripture. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank just you in hearing much. you uh, with those questions, amazing. So we really let's show our appreciation to David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.